left weekly radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy, and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national, and international news with analysis, discussion, and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is um, 7.07 a.m. and we have just, unfortunately, just gotten started. Um, there was some particular issues, but we won't go into that. We'll just go straight We're into here. the program. We're here. That's all that matters. Um, so um, before I announce what's coming up on our program, we have a pretty packed program today. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay our respect um, to elders past and present, um, and that this always was, um, always will be, um, Aboriginal land. <laughs> So, um, we have a it's pretty um, we have a pretty good program today. Um, we're going to be um, speaking straight um, to a uh, socialist from the United States about um, the Bernie Sanders campaign, more the Democratic primaries, because I think the Democratic primaries um, reveal quite a lot of things, um, especially about Do they ever? <laughs> um, especially about the capitalist state um, and the state of politics generally. And then we'll be talking to Godfrey Mosts um, from the United Workers Union, who um, his union has been, he's the Assistant Secretary of the UWU, I think, uh, of a particular division. Um, and he will be talking about trade unions for energy democracy, which is this sort of new kind of national group that has kind of popped up and the UWU has kind of signed up to it. So, yeah. Um, I guess the first thing, actually, maybe um, because I would like to actually have a bit of a start off the, the, the day by having a bit of a discussion about um, this campaign that Megan was involved in, which was um, the Gandalf Gardens. Like, can you sort of tell us really the situation? Like, what is the kind of, because I heard it's kind of concluded at this point. And yes, yet. yes. Um, it is over and disappointingly uh, we lost the trees that were there. So just for people who aren't familiar with the Gandolfo Gardens campaign, uh, there is a, a, a garden called the Gandolfo Gardens in, uh, it's near Moreland Station on the Upfield Line in Coburg. And uh, in 1911, a bunch of citizens got together and funded a community park there. And what they also did is they planted trees at that time. So there are trees that are 110 years old. Um, they were 100. They were 110 years old on the um, the site. Now Alex R P, who is responsible for um, doing the uh, the works to put the train line over the roads uh, in that area on uh, several uh, spots. Uh, has decided in their wisdom to chop down all of these trees in order to get their equipment in to do the work. Now, we did um, have uh, senior engineers consult with us and say that this wasn't the actually actually the only way, that they could move the station, um, you know, 20 to 50 metres down the road to some vacant lot uh, to save the trees. However, Alex RP, in their infinite wisdom, decided that they weren't going to listen to the community. The community consultation, uh, we believe, was a total sham, uh, and the works went ahead. So there was civil disobedience that was carried out by the community members uh, in the Coburg, uh, Brunswick area. 
uh, we managed to stop them uh, for a time putting up the fence to surround the trees. Uh, we surrounded the, the forklift that was bringing out the fencing equipment, etc. We made the news, uh, Channel 7, Channel 9, Herald Sun, etc., and there was a campaign that was launched and, um, you know, it was quite effective in getting the word out there. We had round-the-clock shifts uh, to spot when they were going to bring the cherry pickers in, etc. But unfortunately, um, they they got the best of us. They bought, uh, at, the, at the last moment on a day, they bought the, um, the cherry pickers in at 5am. They had uh, over 10 cops in the area and... Uh, on the morning, I believe it was a Tuesday morning, I think, um, we uh, tried to stop them from uh, having workers enter the area. Uh, we were pushed around, we were manhandled by the police and eventually the workers got in and the trees were destroyed. So it's quite demoralising. Um, these trees were mature trees and um, just really quickly, mature trees are carbon sinks. They pull c- down um, carbon from the atmosphere and they put it into biomass and that's something that we need. We need more mature trees in the suburbs for that particular um, reason. They also create cooler microclimates. Um, it is absolutely proven that studies with uh, the studies have proven that uh, suburbs with more trees are cooler and they have less swings in temperature. They're not baking or freezing. Um, so the more mature trees we have, the better the, the microclimates are in our parkland, in our suburbs. They're also homes for animals. So uh, only trees uh, over a certain age have holes in them. These native trees, and the holes are actually uh, you know homes to uh, possums, to birds, to bees, etc., a whole host of native and non-native species. And also mature trees provide a, a natural corridor through the suburbs as well for animals to get from one natural area or one park area to another. We've just destroyed this. We've had this destroyed. The new trees that come there, that are planted there, won't reach maturity for in, until the people who are cutting them down, they won't live to see t- trees of that maturity on that side before they die. That's the reality of it. And we've lost something that we could have saved. And um, LXRP, the Daniel Andrews government, the Moreland City Council, uh, Jacinta Allen, who's the, the um, planning minister, the transport minister, Richard Wynne, who's the planning minister, they're all responsible for this. They're all responsible for not listening to the community. Uh, they're all responsible for not coming up with a solution that was quite simple, that would have still had everything go on track, but we would have saved the trees. And um, I personally hold them responsible. And so does the community around there. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things is um, yeah, just a question um, for Megan. I guess what can you kind of say, like in terms of, I mean, you alluded to some of these broader political trends, but how what what can you kind of say about the broader political trends um, around, you know, especially since we're living in a you know, with the bushfire crisis, you know, just growing yeah. hectares of land and um, trees, um, and then you have uh, state governments um, um, d- destroying the the, um, the Gandalf Gardens, but then there's also the attempts to um, shop down the sacred trees in Jabron Embassy. Gem- yep, absolutely. And then there's also, I think there's also potentially other local kind of issues, um, which we might not be aware of happening across in both other states and um and uh, and within Victoria, where you know the state government essentially uh, interests take precedent over that of the of the community. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I think there is a broader trend. I mean, the, the Daniel Andrews government is seen as quite a progressive government, um, but one of my colleagues um, recently said that the Dandru- Dan- Daniel Andrews government is a rainbow-coloured bulldozer, and I quite agree with him. You know, uh, they're progressive on some issues, but it does seem to be that uh, there is this absolute uh, disdain and dismissal of community concerns when it comes to uh, removal of our green spaces, chopping down of our mature trees and chopping down in the case of the Jaburong trees, uh, trees that are not only hundreds of years old, but culturally significant to First Nations people as well. We we see a, um, you know, a, a minister in Jacinta Allen who is completely stubborn and does, does not want to uh, engage with the community when it comes to these things. I, I see the, um, the issue is not one just of... Uh, you know, a lack of communication with uh, concerned citizens. I see it as a case of we, we have this almost this like bureaucratic monster that just lumbers over everything and progress is made at any cost. You know, we have to have progress at any cost, at the cost of the trees, at the cost of the community. Um, and we we see a devaluing of this uh, this toing and froing that that uh, you know we feel as a community is quite important. Uh, the, this is a community that we have. We live there. I mean, I raised my son in this area. My son played in the Gandolfo Gardens as a child, running amidst those trees and having fun. That I have a personal connection to that. I can't imagine what's happening at Jaburung, where people have had generations and generations of connection to this, and yet they're still not being listened to by the community. Um, I think that the, the, the actual political um, takeaway of this is that our government, our state government, this supposedly progressive government, does not seem to give a crap about community consultation. It is all a sham and it's all there just to get, you know, just to have them look like they're, they're doing something. Mm. It's utterly ridiculous. Yeah. And that's something I sort of observed that this um, campaign is, it kind of relates to kind of almost um, this kind of political idea that um, we have these kind of experts, these state ministers who are talking with all these sort of experts and they know best, um, even, oh, yeah. though, even though the community campaign, as far as I know, had an expert draft up an alternative plan. We consulted senior engineers. Um, we talked about alternative plans to people who put, were experts. Who put forward yeah. alternative plans. But, of course, they just put, they wanted to put politically a, a, a political kind of alternative to um, the shopping down of Gandalf and Trees. And, of course, the fact is they weren't a, clearly... Um, as the shopping of the trees indicates, they were not being listened to because clearly the state government knows best. It doesn't want to change um, its track yeah. in, in response to any kind of um, real community pressure. <laughs> I just want to um, point out a story. Um, so there was about uh, four community concerned community members. Now, um, LXRP had a public office that was open for community consultation. They had uh, people in there, pa- staff were paid to liaise with the community in a public community office. Now, several members um, who were concerned about the Gandolfo Gardens trees being chopped down, uh, they went to the office, uh, they they went in or they tried to approach the um, the staff members and ask them questions about the program, which they were paid to do, and this was a public office. Hmm. Not only did, so they didn't, the, the staff member that they um, talked to did not give them their, her first name, and okay, that's fine. But what she also did was she refused to answer any questions. She shut the door to the public office 
office on these pe- in these people's faces, and then she she subsequently called the police on com- concerned community members coming in to to this public office to talk to her and have her do her job, which she was paid for. Now they were the the police were quite bemused as to why they were being called. These people were not in any way violent. They were not in any way, um, uh, you know disturbing the peace or anything like that. They were literally there to have this woman do her job and she didn't do her job and she called the police. Uh, And mind you, I mean, like some of these people were elderly retired women. It's not like they were, you know, in any way intimidating at all. But this is basically uh, highlights the sorts of attitude that LXRP and, and the Daniel Andrews government has had throughout the whole thing of this campaign. And I also just want to point out I mean, it does sound like just a simple community campaign. Well, it's a bunch of trees, right? Aren't they going to be replanting these trees after um, the works have been done and creating a new park? Well, yes, that is the case. But as I've said, mature trees are basically an important part of our suburbs. And we are losing green spaces hand over fist here in the suburbs. And mature trees should be part of every green space. Now, what I also assume they're going to do is they're going to be planting trees, native trees that are smaller and more manageable than these large trees, you know, smaller taproots, uh, smaller branches. It's all going to be more manageable, which means that we're going to have less of the biomass that these uh, these mature trees had. We're going to have less of the these creations of these cool microclimates in these parks, um, we're going to have less of a wildlife refuge because, uh, you know, these trees, as I said, they won't have these holes that these mature trees have for 50 years or, or more. Um, but it's also part of a wider, broader problem that we have here in the suburbs. I mean, in, in Victoria and around, um, you know, around Australia, we are having large tracts of native lands and trees burned decimated, trees destroyed everywhere because of bushfires which are linked to the climate crisis. And here we are in the suburbs destroying the very same trees that we are sad that have been lost uh, in the bushfires. It is an absolute, it, it just, it boggles, boggles the mind. Why are we doing this? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, it's, uh, that community consultation is a bit of a sham. It's almost like yes. um, pretty similar to, in some ways, to how uh, um, how the system of um, the Soviet Union um, went uh, ran because basically there was always there was all these o- open sort of there was this open thing with every kind of policy or every political decision that was made in the Soviet Union that you could you know have your say by sending in a survey or filling in some kind of survey or giving writing some kind of letter but generally those letters and those surveys or that information was only just read from the bureaucrats um and of course there was generally no transparent process on how you could open that up democratically um to people and it's not not that much different um because essentially when i put um when um the government has made um made its um political decision the community generally um, they generally just want the community to just rubber stamp that decision. Def- there's definite rubber stamping occurring. And just on that transparency, um, we have co- we have found consistently community members that have contacted LXRP, uh, they are very reticent to give us any information. Uh, we have found that uh, members of LXRP's uh, communications uh, group has given uh, varying um, answers or different answers to different people, some of which directly conflict with um what they've been told previously, again, by an LXRP paid um, community consultant. 
Um, you know, we've constantly found that we've been fobbed off. Uh, we aren't allowed to get the information that we require. Uh, the, this, there has been no transparency. I mean, I will state that categorically. There's been no transparency at all with LXRP community consultation. And they have been community consultations, but what they've done is they've cherry-picked the people that they're going to be talking to in the community. They'll actually um, hand-pick them to make sure that they're not going to be anyone who asks any awkward questions. And that is their community co- consultation, um, you know, that's how they, they go forward, yeah. Yeah, which is laughable. All right. Um, I'll, maybe we'll go um, take a bit of a break and play a quick few announcements, and then we'll move on to discussing some other um, political issues that are happening um, right now. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio. Uh, um, Megan was just talking about giving a sort of overview and uh, about the Gandalf for Gardens campaign, um, which is um, um, some trees that... Um, that were at um, near Moreland Station that unfortunately got um, shot down and was the subject of a big a community campaign that was opposing its um, destruction. All right, I'll just play a quick few announcements then. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is 7.25 a.m. And um, the next thing I'll, um, we want to discuss is um, the outbreak of the coronavirus. Um, how you pronounce it? As in the beer, corona. Corona, corona yeah. Um, which I'm drawing on an article written in um, the upcoming Green Left, um, which is written by Coral Winter, who writes here with the headline, Chrono. Cronona virus um, sparks outbreak of racism. While the first case, and she starts off by writing here, while the first cases of the coronavirus um, 2019 NCOV were reported to in China, um, the virus has now spread to at least 23 countries, including Australia. And of course, all the confir- these confirmed cases of this virus have been linked to Wuhan, um, the capital of the Hubin province, um, leading um, in, within China, leading China to impose um, severe internal travel restrictions on local um, residents in its attempt to limit its spread. Um, all uh, reported deaths have recorded have occurred in China, unless that could be wrong because that 
this article was written a few days ago, so there could be recent developments then, um, with the exception of one man who died in the Philippines on February the, the 2nd, just weeks after he left his hometown of Wuhan. And the world, in response, the world, um, the World Health Organization has declared the outbreak, um, of this virus a public health emergency of emergent international concern, although it has emphasized that global trade and travel restrictions are not needed. But, you know, in the Australian context, it seems the only thing spreading faster than, um, the 2019, um, than the virus itself is racism, especially in Australia. When you look at, like, say, Coral writes here. When you look at um, 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 the the um, the mainstream media, the Herald Sun and the Daily Telegraph's front page headline: Chinese virus pandemonium is just one of the many examples of how the media is using the outbreak to stroke racism. Speaking to The Guardian on February the 2nd, a British Chinese national said the virus is being weaponized as a way to be openly racist. The French media have openly called it the yellow peril. Some countries, including Australia, um, to have closed their borders to almost everyone except Australian citizens um, entering from China. Those who arrive in Australia have had have their visas cancelled and are put in quarantine in on Christmas Island. All of this has contributed to a spike in racism against Chinese Australians and Chinese people in Australia. And, you know, this is all, um, Coral kind of points out that this also has another sort of political context in the fact that um, the Western, even before this sort of outbreak of the coronavirus, the Western media governments were, in a sense, trying to build this sort of ongoing campaign against China because of its rising economic and political influence, particularly in Africa, Asia, and the and the Pacific Islanders. So the whole outbreak of the coronavirus has become a useful tool in this battle. And um, Coral then goes and explains, you know, what is the actual facts of the coronavirus? And according to um, the World Health Organization, coronaviruses are from a large family of viruses that have led to illnesses ranging from the common cold to more severe diseases. There are several different coronaviruses that can be grouped into four types, um, alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. The common cold can be caused by the alpha and beta coronavirus. And the latest kind of strain, um, to the 2000, which is referred to, I've been referring to as the 2019 N Cove, um, which is a new strain of coronavirus not previously identified in humans, is in the beta group because it is a virus and not a bacteria. Antibiotics cannot treat the infection. Instead, a specific racine is required. Of course, coronaviruses can be transmitted between animals and people by physical contact, much like severe acute respiratory tree syndrome, SARS, was in 2002-2003, and more likely coronaviruses in animals are more uh, are likely to be identified as surveillances improved, improves around the world. The first cases were discovered in December in Wuhan in a food market where meats, poultry and fish, as well as live reptiles and wild game, were sold. Chinese national authorities alerted who of a viral outbreak on December the 31st and closed the market on January the 1st. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of, um, that's sort of a bit of the summary, I think, of the politics. Um, and I think it says, I guess, Megan, you want to, um, you said you want to have a story to sort of illuminate this. Well, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, people, 
across Australia. I mean, I see it on my Facebook. I I um, am talking to uh, someone who handles um, intake for university for overseas students, and they're telling me that these people are quite scared and they've had uh, experiences of facing uh, racism um, due to this. But there's a particular event um, that uh, that's occurred that really sort of highlights um, the racism that's inherent in in the coverage of this. Um, of the coronavirus outbreak. So um, there is a Melbourne um, promotional company. Um, they've apologised after being accused of organising a racist and insensitive nightclub event um, that profited from the coronavirus health emergency. So Mr Chance was going to have an event um, at Porn & Co in Paran on, fr- on, on Friday and it was advertised as a Corona Chinese New Year special. So patrons could buy Corona beer for $8 and get a free face mask and buy happy ending cocktails. Um, and it says here in an ABC News article that Anthony Leung, um, president of the Chinese Australian Friendship Association, called out the event as ignorant, racist and insensitive shortly before the event was cancelled. He said, I was surprised that somebody, anybody, could be so insensitive and ignorant to terms uh, in terms of profiting from this and thinking it was funny, Mr Leung said. I think the timing is not just ill-conceived and insulting. It also shows a lack of knowledge, empathy and humanity. And I'm actually looking at a Mr Chan's um, uh, image here that's uh, promoting the event. And it is your typical, um, you know, if, if you think of um, World War II posters in regards to um, depicting Asians, it's pretty much that kind of thing, you know, the, the typical uh, hat, the typical facial features, etc. And it's a, a, a supposedly Asian person holding a Corona beer and with a face mask on. And I'm looking at it going, this is 2020. Are we really doing this in 2020? And this is the kind of thing, this is kind of real world ramifications that um, racism uh, from this coronavirus is having. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I think it, that sort of reflects how um, capitalism can, well, the individual capitalists or bosses can use any sort of tragedy um, and profit and off attempt it. to profit off at it at the cost of yeah. ra- you know perpetuating racist um, you know ideas. Mm. And I think what has been interesting has been um, the response of the Australian state and nation states around the world to the coronavirus, um, because I thought I think it's sort of interesting to note that. Um, Whenever these sort of outbreaks happen, because the way nation states kind of work, generally every sort of um, nation state is generally designed to preserve its own political and economic and social interests um, above all, um, which sort of shows, I think, reflects something about society in a sense that, you know, the common response to... Um, to an outbreak of a virus in another country is for a nation state to essentially close the borders. And this is mm. despite the fact that the um, WHO had, hadn't actually recommend, um, had actually, hasn't actually argued that we should be closing the borders. And also the fact is if, um, in a world that where we weren't sort of necessarily divided by borders or um, balancing the interests of nation states, I would imagine that something like an outbreak of a virus within another country could be dealt with in a far more kind of rational kind of way where people actually can 
collectively kind of come together, make the best decision on the basis of the best science, but no, what has to also be balanced out is the kind of political and economic interest of these, of these countries. And as I made reference to, the fact is the US and Australia have been attempting to undermine China because China represents a political threat to their economic interests as a nation state. So I think it does mm. kind of raise those kind of political questions. Um, but I also think um, the outbreak of the virus should also be put in another global context, and that is when you look at China, um, the fact that China has been able to respond to it, I mean, for all we know, there is some suspicion that they might be repressing some results, etc., to downplay virus. I mean, that's kind of similar to what happened in, I think, um, the Chernobyl kind of incident um, during the Soviet Union. There mm. was there was some doctoring and downplaying the results. I mean, that is just, that's potential. That's a bit speculative at this point. But I guess another issue is um, the fact that China has been able to respond to this. I think with the resources it has. Um, you can just imagine that um, if this was a global South country where actually some of these outbreaks have actually happened more frequently and more severely because when some of these um, some outbreaks of diseases happen, um, a lot of these countries don't have access to proper medical care, um, proper um, uh, the same level of infrastructure, and also that it sometimes don't even have access to vaccines. And, you know, the response um, from countries like... Australia, well, as someone living in a global north country, is completely different, whereas because it's happened in China, it clearly dominates um, the headlines and mm. the voices of, you know, those in the global south are pretty much forgotten, even when it um, when it happens to them. Um, yeah, and just um, to give you a little bit more um, global context, so firstly, um, as of this morning, there are now 15 cases of the coronavirus here in Australia. Um, the, the whole closing the borders thing, now, it... This is not the most logical response that we could have to this. Now, firstly, um, when you were talking about nation states and protecting their own interests, etc., um, one of the things that is obviously missed in a lot of these cases, etc., is the development of a robust and absolutely all-covering um, a early detection system across the planet. Um, there, there's actually it's interesting. Um, this is this is something that I studied at university at university level. This is kind of part of my qualifications. Um, there is absolutely no doubt in the mind of um, professional healthcare providers across the world and people who study uh, disease outbreaks, etc., that early detection and communication across nations. This is this is a really important thing. Across nations, benefits all nations as a whole in detecting these early um, you know outbreaks before they even get into the human population, reporting them accurately, and working together to control and manage the diseases. Uh, you know, if they get into the human population, then controlling and managing those. Now, in it, it does seem like a really sort of uh, rational idea to simply close the borders. But that's a Band-Aid solution. In order to actually protect Australian interests, Australia has to put more money into global detection systems and in particular into global detection systems in third world countries that do not have the resource for these sorts of detection systems and then, of course, the management, etc. Now, um, here's an example. Um, So there's a really interesting um, uh, series on Netflix called Pandemic. If you're really wanting to have a look at this sort of thing in depth, um, have a look at that uh, that particular series. It's it's quite good and it, it gives you an example of what occurs across the world. 
Now, one of the things that's happening, and um, you know, maybe we can talk about this with um, Isaac uh, as well. Um, so, uh, when in in America, when um, refugees cross the border to America. Um, there is a small amount of funding to give these people flu viruses and to actually check their health status when they come in across the border. Uh, unfortunately, under the Trump government, uh, the funding for uh, uh, flu vaccinations to provide to these uh, refugees has dried up. And this is a kind of a punitive thing. I mean, these with the Trump administration, these refugees are seen as less than human. And because they've crossed over the border, they're basically being punished because they're coming over to, Australia, to uh, America to find a better life, etc., because they're, they're facing persecution. Um, but it's actually in the very interest of the American people and the American government as a whole to vaccinate these people from the virus and to do comprehensive health checks because it affects uh, American communities and American people. And this is happening across the world. I mean, if you don't put money into uh, global detection systems, global disease management and, and uh, vaccinations into third world countries, into countries of the global south, it will come back to bite first world countries in the arse because they have basically left these reservoirs um, because the countries themselves can't deal with them because they're members of the global south and we've constantly used their resources to their detriment and to our benefit. Uh, we have an obligation, regardless of whether um, we benefit or not, but in practical terms, we do benefit from assisting countries in the global south to manage their diseases and to have early detection systems and to have a vaccination, a well, well, an adequate vaccination program. Yeah. So it's quite disturbing that we basically take this nation state uh, idea of lockdown and not help these people before it gets to this point. So, yeah, it's it's one of my bugbears and it really does. It's quite frustrating for, for health professionals across the world to have this isolationist kind of um, management of disease. Hmm. All right. Um, I, you're listening to Green Left Radio. Um, it is 7.40 a.m. Um, I guess just one quick news story um, that I'd just like to bring up is um, one thing that happened was um, Richard Dean Natale um, has resigned um from um from the parliament um and resigned well not hasn't resigned completely from the parliament yet he still, will soon he will soon um the victorian greens leader and um adam bant has been selected as the new greens leader um so which is quite interesting especially since um you know richard d natale was criticized from the left boom for being centrist etc and adam bant is from a kind of more left-wing tradition um so it's going to be interesting to see what um what the implications of him of adam bant becoming leader of the greens becomes um and one of the first things he sort of went in and um, went on about was the Green New Deal, uh, mm. more the kind of yeah, Greens kind of Green New Deal. And in fact, actually interesting, this is something we should consider doing for our program at some point, having a bit of a debate and discussion about the Green New Deal, because <laughs> funny enough, this is a bit of a funny um, side point, but Malcolm Turnbull just went in um, on about how he supports a Green New Deal, which is sort of like defying beggar's belief on Thanks, what Malcolm. kind of, why what, don't you do this when you were leader what, what kind of green new deal he means um yeah. because what what constitutes kind of a green new deal could actually be different depending on the political um mm. application of it so yeah anyway i might just go play um a short 
um, song. Um, let me just find a quick one to play. Um, I'll just play Old Man River slash Joe Hill by Paul Robinson, which will go for three minutes, which will then take us to our first interview for the program with Isaac Silva. All right. Um, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, um, and on the line we have Isaac um, Silva, our first interview um, for the program. Um, Isaac is uh, a member of the um, Democratic Socialists of America in the United States and has been involved um, quite heavily in um, the Bernie Sanders um um, primary campaign. Um, so, yeah, we have him on the line today to talk about, you know, bit of the clusterfuck that has basically been the de- um, the Democratic um, primaries. So, yeah, good morning, Isaac. Good morning. Oh, yes. How are you? Yeah, we can hear you perfectly, just making sure. Um, so, um, yeah, so, Isaac, can you give, um, start off by maybe, just for, for the listeners, can you give a bit of a summary, I guess, of the kind of political situation surrounding the Democratic primaries at this point in terms of, like, the results, etc.? Okay, so I would characterize the situation as uh, far more favorable to Bernie Sanders than pretty much anybody expected mm. uh, earlier this week. Um, Iowa, which is the first state to vote in the primary process, uh, just completed its caucus, which people may be aware of. It's a very bizarre kind of arcane procedure Um that is probably too difficult to describe in detail in this program. But uh, the main the main obstacle for Bernie Sanders for most of the past year has been um, that there was this perception that Joe Biden was the front runner of the race. And, and Sanders was always, uh, you know, sort of struggling in second place or maybe uh, slip into first and then go back down to second. And uh, the Biden campaign in, in Iowa just had a terrible result. It utterly collapsed. It was in fourth place, got half as many votes as uh, Sanders. And Sorry, um, just to clarify, Isaac, this is Joe. Yes. Is that right? Joe Biden? Yeah, Joe Biden, uh, Obama's vice president. Yeah. So he's he's kind of been anointed by the media as the you know, the presumed front runner. And then now that that's actually been to the put to the test, it just uh, utterly collapsed. So um, from that perspective, that uh, like various kind of forecasting websites like uh, 538, I don't know if people are familiar with that. It's a it's this kind of data crunching website that predicts uh, likely winners of of elections in the U.S., um, it flipped from Sanders having, you know, like a 25% chance of getting the nomination to now it says he has a 50% chance of getting the nomination <laughs> just because of the, the utter collapse, the seeming utter collapse of the Biden campaign. Of course, there is another vote coming up in New Hampshire, uh, this, this Tuesday, um, a few days from now. Uh, Sanders is also forecast to, to, he's predicted to win there as well. Um, so there is a lot of energy and momentum and kind of excitement around the campaign, which is slightly confused by the confusion about the slightly confused by the, the, the disorganization and disarray of the, uh, Iowa results. But, 
I think that that will sort of uh, decline in in importance as we move forward, and and uh, it's not going to be. People are sort of obsessive about it right now, but I don't foresee that being um, much of a lasting issue. Uh, and, and and when the smoke clears, I think it's going to be revealed that Sanders won by all three of the metrics that they count uh, the winner there. So there's there's some confusion about whether he or Pete Buttigieg uh, won in one of the the metrics. But you know, it's uh, this is just kind of like a media circus issue, not not a real political determinant. Um, Isaac, um, some of us here, um, you know, who are interested in politics are absolutely following this with absolute fascination. Um, one of the things of particular interest to me is, uh, in Iowa, the use of an app that was developed by a, a company that you know, there's not a lot of information about called Shadow. Uh, and yes. that, you know, there's, there's obvious, um, so I believe that Peter Buttigieg, um, has donated to the, this, um, this company and I believe it might have Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton campaign connections, etc. Can you comment on this? Because we've been watching this kind of with open mouths going, what is going mm-hmm. on here? Can you give us a little bit of an idea about background and, and what, what the implications of that app were? Yes, I, I think that that I think that the impacts. My my view is that the impact of that app uh, in the result was has probably been exaggerated. I think that there is definitely corruption, but I would characterize it as corruption that is like endemic and and, and widespread in this society. And Pete Buttigieg and Clinton and app developers. Uh, know each other because they run in the same circles. It's it's the ruling mm. class. They, you know, I, I don't think that it was conspiratorial in the sense that this campaign paid them to develop an app that would crash at a certain amount and then stall the the results and so forth. Um, I think that I think that it was uh, bureauc- most likely bureaucratic disorganization and confusion because of the very bizarre way that uh, the winner is calculated in Iowa, which is unlike any other election in the United States. Hmm. Um, so the, 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 the lasting impact of the app question in particular is I think that that app was also going to be used in the upcoming Nevada election, and hmm. uh, unsurprisingly, nobody wants to have anything to do I think they've uh, officially that said app. that they're not going to be using it. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they won't be using that. So... Um, there is like an ongoing uh, there's there's an ongoing mess in Iowa, and the latest is that um, the the really exciting turnaround which happened uh, last night here. I don't know what time that would have been. There is that the, the um, uh, Sanders was trailing in one of the one of the metrics, which is the delegate count, and uh, seemingly. You know, it was being reported by the New York Times, for example, as he had, a, you know, Buttigieg has a 98% chance of winning this. It's absolutely impossible for Sanders to come around. And what, what in fact had happened is, I think, due to probably somewhat due to structural racism and due to incompetence, they were not counting uh, and, and or not including the fact that none of the so-called satellite caucuses had been accounted for. Uh, these are special voting sites that were targeted towards uh, immigrants and refugees 
workers in different industries, union members, students. And now that those have been reported, uh, Bernie Sanders absolutely swept them, like literally – uh, th- this is actually what I was working on in, in Iowa, and it was quite dramatic where you would have situations with 160 or 170 uh, refugees from Myanmar and Bhutan and Sudan voting, and uh, it, the vote would go 90% for Bernie Sanders. Um, wow. So uh, that, that w- that's been kind of a <laughs> – it, it was uh, – you know that, that that's been a, a startling result for people who weren't aware that those had not been counted, but it's incredibly inspiring for us, and it's absolutely absolutely at the heart of what Bernie Sanders' campaign strategy is, which is exactly to energize and mobilize working class voters and people of color and immigrants and youth students. Work so uh, that really paid off. Yeah. Um, I think one mm-hmm. um, what the, one of the kind of questions about the um, Bernie Sanders with his kind of popular kind of clearly popular support based on this the Iowa um, result is um, the Democrats clear the Democrats kind of establishment um, clear agenda to kind of undermine him in every way um, from yes. potentially getting the nomination. And I'd like to see what's your comment on some of the politics of that. Mm. Yeah, so my understanding of this is. Um the, the politics, the, the political program of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump obviously could not be more different. I think that there is a similar dynamic within the political parties of these being outsider, anti-establishment campaigns, which the establishment has no idea how to react to and has flailed around uh, throwing everything they, they possibly can, and nothing seems to work. So similarly to... 2016, when there were, I think there were like 16 or 17 candidates in the Republican primary, uh, more than there ever had been in history. Um, and these were all, you know, one after another sort of fluffed up by the media and the establishment as an anti-Trump alternative. And they all just fizzled out. And I think a similar dynamic has happened uh, within the, the sort of internal party politics this year where they have uh, at one point, I think there were like 24 Democratic candidates and one after another, the various ones have been promoted as, you know, this is the person who's going to to stop Bernie Sanders. But hmm. that has the, the downside of that for the establishment means that they have failed to unify support and st- strategy behind any of them. So. Uh, Biden was probably the most serious one of those obstacles, and he seems to really be collapsing now. We may see some more promotion of Pete Buttigieg for a while, uh, but you know, it's it's. Uh, I think it's really just a case of them not knowing how to respond to a candidate who relies on their support from uh, mass mobilization of millions of you know. All of Bernie Sanders' funding comes from small donations, uh, all of the volunteer, and, um, you know, the media doesn't support him, but he has uh, such a, a, a tremendously outsized social media presence and word-of-mouth presence that it really, you know, it doesn't matter what the major papers are saying, because if anything, that just 
um, clarifies how much he's seen as a threat to the establishment and it in the end helps him. So, so I think that it, all of those factors make, uh, make it really difficult for them to, really difficult for me to identify what they'll be able to do to stop him successfully. One looming threat is, uh, Michael Bloomberg, who is, I think, in the top 10 richest people in the world. He reportedly has $60 billion to his name. He's a declared candidate. He's not running in the early states. He declared himself as a candidate too late, probably, um, observing exactly what I just described and seeing that there wasn't any anti-Bernie Sanders candidate that was unifying uh, the establishment. So he's going to officially enter the race uh, next month, and he's already spent half a billion dollars in television ads um, without a single vote being cast. So, And he has uh, thousands of people on staff. Um, so we'll see how that that uh, plays out um, yeah. but I think that that could be another I, I, I think that there's still a chance that Biden could rebound although that seems very unlikely there's also a small chance that Buttigieg could b- gain momentum but that seems very unlikely because he has uh, practically zero support from any non-white voters and then there's also a chance that uh, Bloomberg could become the anti-Sanders candidate but that's again to have a literal billionaire running against the guy who's saying we the people have to take on the billionaires isn't exactly a great uh, PR move for them. So no, uh, we, we will see. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, th- this is absolutely capturing the attention of, of the entire planet. I mean, I, I know young Americans here in Australia who are getting involved uh, online, sending texts, etc., donating money, uh, you know, mm-hmm. even though they're not even in the country at the moment. Um, there's a couple of things that I wanted to chat about to you about. Um, so the first one is you may have heard the recording of Donald Trump uh, basically admitting that he was relieved uh, that Hillary Clinton uh, had been given uh, the nomination for the, the Democratic candidate because mm-hmm. he was concerned about uh, Sanders. And I think, I believe that, because he was concerned that, that the Sanders w- would win, and I believe it was um, something to do with uh, his his stance on trade, etc. But this really just highlights um, the, the kind of situation where, you know, we, we have the, the President of the United States talking about the fact that he was glad Hillary was nominated, um, because Sanders has this huge base. And, and I think, I believe that Trump understands that, uh, Sanders can take his base. This, he's probably the only person, um, you know, within the candidacy of, of the Democratic Party who can actually take a large chunk of, of, of Trump's base. And I think that is dismissed a lot. I guess, uh, my question for you is in this case, I mean, with regards to what happened in 2016 and the underhanded politics, um, you know that that underlie under underlie that. Um, do you think that it is at all possible that the Democratic Party may simply just um, shoot themselves in the foot, uh, figure that you know what we're not going to win the presidency this time, um, but we can't let Sanders win. Uh, let's just put mm-hmm. someone up that we know is not going to win, but it's not Sanders at least. Do you think that that's a possibility at all? Yeah, I think that, that that absolutely is a possibility. Um, I, because of how the, the degree to which things are in motion this week, it's 
it's really difficult to look forward and anticipate what may happen at the uh, Democratic nominating convention this summer and afterwards. Um, but I really anticipate it being, you know, a complete shit show with the, mm. the, it's it's just not Bernie Sanders and his political platform and his base and the kind of, uh, you know, left politics that he promotes are utterly incompatible with the Democratic Party. And um, so it it would incite practically a civil war within within that party were he to get the nomination, which seems more likely than I ever expected prior to the past week. Uh, so where that goes, I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, I, I definitely think there's one possibility, you know, he could get the nomination and the party apparatus would try to sabotage his campaign and effective, in effect, make it a sort of an independent campaign. I think that there are obviously possibilities of, you know, various types of sabotage prior to, prior to him getting the nomination. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, there may be some type of there could be some type of realignment where um, you know parts of the 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 capitalist class that are currently you know see the Democratic Party as their party would would withdraw at least for the time being. So um, there's all kinds of possibilities, and it, it re- it's not a hyperbolic statement to say that this is an unprecedented situation in. In U.S. politics, uh, so I don't, I, you know, Trump on the other hand, you know, also was seen as an anti-establishment uh, politician and so forth. But he very successfully, you know, he did successfully cohere the Republican Party, which is now unified as Trump's party. Uh, but he can do that because he's a pro-capitalist candidate. He doesn't fundamentally mm-hmm. challenge the profitability of. Uh, the health insurance industry, which is like a quarter of the U.S. economy. Um, Bernie Sanders' yeah. platform this this time would is essentially calling for massive socializations and nationalizations of huge parts of the economy, major structural mm-hmm. changes to the legal system, um, to strengthening the labor movement, uh, all kinds of things that are just, you know, a total nightmare for the leadership of the Democratic and Party. And devastating so, to the capitalist class if, if implemented. Y- yes, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. To, to the capitalist class and, uh, you know, which has always seen the Democratic Party as one of the ways that they're going to manage this system. You Every four years you can just switch back and forth between yeah. option A and B, and this is, uh, this is not option A or B. This is something else entirely. So yeah. uh, it'll be really... Um, quite interesting to see uh, how how they respond to it. Yeah. So, Isaac, um, we're running a bit um, low on time now. Um, yep. We'll just go conclude this interview. Um, do you have any kind of, like, final comments um, you'd like to make? Uh, yeah, just... Uh, <laughs> Keep, keep your keep your eyes peeled. Keep following it. I think oh, we will it's, be. <laughs> uh, it's it's exciting, and it, it will become more exciting. The, the other thing that I would say is this is all just um, this is in the world of electoral type politics, you know, with the primary. But the the other thing to keep in mind in the U.S. is that there has been uh, 
not you know there's not a strike wave or anything like that but there has been a relative uh increase in the amount of um labor action uh other mm. other kinds of mass movements have seen some renewed energy in the past year so it so that that's another possibility and something to look towards is that there could be other types of extra you know non-electoral political activity in the US that would again, have a, a, a dynamic impact on the presidential election. Hmm. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you so much and, and, and one final thing I would say is just, you know, no matter what happens, that uh, the I didn't get a chance to talk about the failed impeachment of Trump, but I think that Trump is going into this election due to the incompetence of the Democratic Party leadership stronger than he has been yes. in his entire term. And him being reelected is a real danger to keep in mind. So yeah. this is that's one final thing to, to keep in your eyes. Hmm. All right. Thank you very much, Isaac. Thank you so much for your time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Have a great day. You too. All right. Um, that was um, Isaac um, Silva talking about um, the U.S. Um, kind of presidential elections or as in the Democratic kind of primaries, which has been mm. the kind of center. Absolutely fascinating. And I guess one of the, one of the more interesting kind of things uh, about the U.S. Democratic primaries is I think they reveal, I think, the nature of the capitalist kind of state quite well um, in a sense that, you know, one of the fascinating kind of contradictions, I think, is the whole disastrous sort of Iowa results um, and the kind of process. Mm. Um, these are the same people who have been telling us that the electoral processes in Bolivia, in Venezuela, are yeah. anti-undemocratic and they uh-huh. are implementing a, a coup and those um, have implemented coups. Um, the US has implemented coups in those countries um, as well, or attempted coups. Due to the undemocratic, uh, supposed undemocratic nature of the electoral process. And Electoral here it is and happening here it is in, a in the country that is has been imperialist for for so many years. And, mm. um, I, look, honestly, this is an absolutely fascinating topic, and I had so many more questions to ask of Isaac. And I honestly think that with the way that this is unfolding, and the fact that there's so much more to happen, and the fact that we have so many questions, I think we need him back on the show just to give uh, an up to date. Um, you know, sort of blow by blow account of what's happening as each um, uh, primary goes ahead, and when we see uh, we see the results unfolding. Because this, look, I I'm quite cynical. I do not believe that the Democratic Party will in any way allow Sanders to be their candidate. I I know that somehow they are going to foil him, uh, and it's just it's just a matter of. How much are they willing to look like the bad guys and to actually have this be really obvious? Um, and I mean, at the moment, I think already they're looking at ways of, of short circuiting his um, candidacy. Mm. Mm. I just honestly am quite yeah. cynical. I don't yeah. think it's going yeah. to happen because ultimately the Democrats are a capitalist party. Um, they're not. They're 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 not even close to being yeah. a Labor Party because there's no working class base. It, it's um, similar to here in Australia. Who, who has got, any influence? Yeah. Um, there's not even a trade union bureaucracy that necessarily has any influence over over the over um, the politics of the Democrats. So I think yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, and I think one of the main limitations of the Sanders campaign is the fact that he is running under the Democrats, but the mm. fact that he is probably running under the Democrat 
primary is probably what is giving a much larger audience to these sort of political ideas that are going to be yeah. potentially And a much larger audience it. to the primaries as well. Look, actually, one question I didn't ask of Isaac, and I hope to get him back on the show to ask this, is with the outcome, you know, if if Sanders gets this huge, you know, obviously he's got a huge groundswell of people, um, you know, behind him. If he does not get the Democratic um, candidacy, if he's not allocated that, you know, and, and there's a clear, uh, you know, there's a clear showing that he has actually got the numbers, will he run as an independent presidential candidate? Now, I'm assuming that because Bernie is, you know, has said, look, he'll get behind whoever is the is the candidate, etc., that he won't. But I mean, is that f- for the best politically um, in America? I mean, wouldn't would he be better running independently uh, and showing the Democratic Party that he does have the power? Mm. Um, so yeah, I would love Isaac's analysis on that. Mm. All right, um, we might just play a quick announcement. Unfortunately, we looks like we sort of skipped <laughs> the activist calendar a bit for our discussion. But I'll just um, make a note that this for, um, today there is at four thirty p.m. there is going to be a rally outside the Department of Immigration. Um, standing by stand again against racism in response to the coronavirus um, outbreak in the state response, and then on Sunday at 1 p.m. at the state um, library there is a rally um, against religious exemptions bill by Scott Morrison, organised by Rainbow Rebellion at 1 p.m. this Sunday. So I think those are kind of like the major events coming. And then on the 22nd of February there's the Climate Crisis National Day of Action, 2 p.m. at the state library. Um, I'll just play a quick announcement and we'll move on to our Second interview. Has your organisation been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organisational subscribers. Just $150 gets your organisational group behind Melbourne's longest-running activist radio station. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 9419 and become an organisational subscriber. Show your love, 3CR. Three CR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to more than a community radio. Please subscribe now. Just a moment, Ila. Ida Three CR community radio araja al istrakel an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanoli Three CRi kertu kondir kandirikal. Inre inayingal. Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Metsuk ketsek radio i gairanin boratanguda melbumi hai kaotin. Hima artsanakrevetsek iper Trisiari antam. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. From a private life so public As the tabloids caught your tears How sad, how tragic, but it doesn't have to be that way on the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program. (laughs) 
You're listening to Green Left um, Radio. Sorry for um, the issues there. Um, on the line, we have Godfrey Mose, um, who is, I'm pretty sure, the assist, assist, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, the Assistant Secretary of the United Workers Union. Um, and we have him on the line to talk about um, this new initiative that has kind of been launched um, worldwide by trade unions around the world, trade unions for energy democracy. Um, so, yeah, good morning, Godfrey. Good morning, Jacob. I, I would say you might have given me a, a promotion there. We don't have any assistant secretaries uh, in the United Workers mm-hmm. Union. I'm just an executive director. Executive. Um, but you yeah. used to be you used to be the assistant secretary of the National Union of Workers. Is that correct? Because that's where yeah, I'm the, getting, that's uh, where I'm getting it from. I thought that you <laughs> I thought you might have just um, automatically just became the assistant secretary of the United Workers Union as when the, um, the unification happened between United Voice and. Uh, don't, don't want to particularly. I don't want to overstate my importance. Yeah, <laughs> I, you're important. <laughs> yeah. So I guess um, to start off, Godfrey, um, what can you tell me about this kind of new initiative, um, Trade Unions for Energy Democracy? <laughs> Yeah, Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, it's a global uh, initiative of um, 66 trade unions around the world um, centred in New York, but um, there are strong affiliates uh, in Latin America, Asia Pacific, Europe, uh, and it's really about unions, labour organisations um, and comrades locating the climate crisis in the particular role that private capital plays um, and fossil fuel corporations in particular. So it's a way of um, trade unions networking, sharing information, campaigning and organising um, around the climate crisis but with a particular assessment on the pernicious role of capital in uh, creating this problem that we're all living with. And um, what are the particular demands um, of the organisation? Yeah, it, we have a, um, a platform uh, for trade unions for energy democracy. Um, and really what it comes down to uh, is in the specific about ensuring that energy as a system, um, energy infrastructure, productive processes... Um, is owned in public and social hands. So um, TUED, Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, played a role in um, in dialogue with UK Labor in terms of a lot of the um, platforms and policies that came out uh, of UK Labor around public ownership of energy and utilities. Um, so it, it really can be boiled down to its its essence in that we need to find ways to ensure private capital no longer controls, owns and dictates what happens in energy, but it comes back into the people's hands. That's fantastic. Um, I don't think it can be overstated um, the role that unions should be playing in combating the climate crisis. And, you know, part of this is bringing, um, you know, our energy systems back into public hands. Um, do you think that there should be an increased role uh, in here in Australia in unions speaking up uh, on these issues and being part of, um, you know, the climate emergency uh, solution, basically? Yeah, definitely, because um, if we don't have unions, if we don't have workers in, involved um, 
we're not going to win and also it's going to become too technocratic that the solutions will be about mm. targets um, and emissions. And that is that is still important, that is necessary, but it's not sufficient because the climate crisis has come about because of the way we relate to each other when we make and consume things. They're social relationships and unless we mm. deal with how those social relationships have caused this this great crisis, then we're not going to permanently solve the issue. We're just going to kick the can down the road for um, mm. for a few years. So I think that energy democracy is the missing is a, is as a concept the missing piece of the puzzle with just transition because the, the union movement came up with the term just transition and and there is a bit of cynicism around the term nowadays. But that's because of the lived experience of, of workers having a just transition to nowhere and escalated and nowhere, yeah. if you will. Yeah. But energy democracy is the end point of that just transition. It is much easier to look a coal miner in the eye to look an oil refinery worker in the eye about, okay, what are we going to make sure we can do so that you and your family and your friends in this community have good quality jobs going forward if you leave it to the market, you can't just say that's going to happen. We all no. know that. Yeah. But if we have um, public and state ownership of, of key infrastructure, that's energy democracy. That's what we. That's what the just transition is towards as well. And so do you think, I mean, this term energy democracy, I'd, I'd actually never heard of it before. I'm assuming it's kind of a, a relatively new term in the in the general lexicon. Do you think that this is probably more of a, uh, a terminology tool uh, than just transition in, in getting through to working class people that we, um, th- this is the way to go and that, in fact, you know, we can actually have this whole um, idea of people still having their jobs and, and still having this, um, you know, radical uh, solution to, to, uh, to climate justice, basically. Do you think it, do you think it's an alternative to, uh, to a just transition to the term? Uh, I, I think it's, it, it's hugely important. I would say it's complementary, um, mm. and the emphasis on one or the other will change over time. But there's no talking about energy democracy is a neat way of cutting towards the pernicious role that profit and capital plays um, in in extracting value out of our earth systems and leaving all the rest of us to deal with the cost of that yeah. and. Going hard on energy democracy is a way of painting a picture about what the world could be like otherwise and a way of therefore honestly engaging workers in the struggle. Just transition is more of a transitory thing about, okay, how are we going to make sure we have that state of energy democracy at the end of it? So Mm. I think they go go together um, and together they paint a picture it's just that if you try and paint that picture with just transitions and nothing else, then you're only painting it in, in one shade. There's no light that goes into it, no hope um, at the end, and that's what energy democracy provides, that hope. 
And so I'm just trying to clarify this in my mind. So I guess, in other words, a just transition could be within the context still of this um, this idea that, you know, our energy could still be, you know, in capital hands. Uh, so, you know, you could still have, you could say to the coal worker, well, you know, you can have now a job in um, wind technology on a, on a wind farm, but that wind farm is still owned by a corporate entity. So that's still not... Uh, energy democracy in I guess in fact the energy democracy is the end point where we want to be so that not just the job is controlled by the worker but the actual infrastructure etc is controlled by the worker who is a common um, uh, a thing that's owned is that correct yeah that's that's correct because I don't think there's any real just transition that is left to capital mm. we've got to remember that just transition came out of the union movement out of socialist union leaders and a just transition is only possible when you're transitioning out of um, domination by capital. So energy democracy is a way of naming in a very accessible fashion um, what does that look like in this sector um, as a transitory thing. No one one really believes tomorrow we're going to wake up and we're going to be in a post-capitalist system. but making it concrete about what a uh, a socialist, um, what a democratic energy system could look like in this particular sector is a way of bringing forward um, what the future might look like that, yeah. is, that is understandable that people can fight for and win. And I like the idea that... Um you know, this is being the, the the conversation is being taken up by uh, unions that are actually involved in the energy sector. Can you just um, I don't know if you've already mentioned, but can you just maybe mention the unions that are on board um, with the organisation now, and then maybe give us an idea of how um, you know people can get involved, how more unions can get involved, etc. Yes, um, so. We have 66 unions around the world, uh, some big energy unions in Australia, um, such as the MUA, United Workers Union, ETU. Um, but I think it's important to recognise our theory of working is that every worker is an energy worker. If you mm-hmm. are in an office, you're switching the lights on, you are using, um, you're using a computer, you're an energy worker. If you're driving around day-to-day in a logistics uh, role or as a courier, you're an energy worker. If you're a, a nurse um, or a paramedic or a firefighter and you're on the front lines of the climate crisis, you're an energy worker. So we take an expansive universalist approach that every worker um, works with energy in some way, shape or form and therefore should have a voice about energy democracy. Um, so we have the ANMF as well uh, and the NTU who um, uh, have joined Trade Unions for Energy Democracy. It's really simple. Uh, if anyone, uh, any union wants to jump on board, uh, and there are more than what I've just named, then just go to unionsforenergydemocracy.org um, and hit contact. We also have other related um, comradely labour organisations such as Australia Asia Worker Link um, and Union Aid Abroad, a feeder. Uh, so there is space um, for any group of workers, uh, collective group of workers fighting for justice who want to jump on board 
trade unions for energy democracy. Absolutely, and might, it might be a good idea to get you know members of unions to contact their unions and say, you know, hey, we want you to become a member of trade unions for energy democracy as well, just to you know keep that ball rolling and, and get them to understand that there is that that you know that movement uh, in the community. That's fantastic. Um, I guess so. We're probably running a little bit out of time, um, Godfrey. But is there anything that you that we haven't covered, or anything that you want to sort of summarise or emphasise? Um, I think uh, what I would just emphasise is that this we're in a moment of opportunity that is that is opening up. So mm. uh, any group of workers um, or network of delegates who want to push their union leadership. Um, to take a strong stance around climate, around the bushfires, around energy democracy. Now is the time to, to do that because um, energy democracy is part of the solution to the climate crisis, but it starts with trade union democracy um, as well. So we're at a moment here that people can really take advantage of. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much for um, for coming on the show. And we really appreciate the work that the unions are doing um, to address the climate crisis. And um, I, I personally am an absolute fan of unions being involved because I think it's the only way that we can really involve the broader community, uh, you know, in, in the climate solution. Yeah, thank well, you so thank much. You. Thanks for having me. Great. You yeah. have a good day. Thank yeah, you. Bye. So that was Godfrey Mose um, uh, of the U- United Workers Union, but also of Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, uh, which is a new global organisation bringing um, on board unions uh, in the fight to democratise our energy sector. Yeah. All right. Um, so we're getting um, to the end of our program. Um uh, there is one thing I wanted to say. Now, can you just um, well, uh, can you just repeat uh, when the religious freedoms um, the protest is? Is that's on Sunday? Is that correct? One p.m. Sunday, the State Library. Yeah, so one p.m. Sunday at the State Library. I just wanted to really quickly uh, just let people know the practical ramifications of a religious freedom bill. Um, so part of it is that uh, you know people like medical professionals can deny access to things, uh, and there's actually a, an example of this. So in talking in the Torquay Medical Health and Wellbeing Clinic. There is a doctor called Dr Hong who will now no longer be involved in prescribing contraceptions, um, you know, the pill, uh, Implanon, etc., but will also not now no longer give um, consults on sterilisation referrals, consultations for vasectomies, consultations for IVF or consultations for abortions. So this doctor has now decided that they are no longer, because of their religious beliefs, going to provide these services. And this is at the Torquay Medical Health and Wellbeing Clinic. Um, so I think I believe in naming and shaming, to be honest, uh, because this is absolutely reprehensible. If you don't want to provide these services, don't be a doctor. And this is a practical ramifications of a religious freedom bill, unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately, we just have to close up the program now. Um, have a great um, evening. Well, have a great day, everyone. And we'll see you next Friday. And stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.com 
www.ngbc.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. To start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? Oh!